Business Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. It's Thursday, the 30th September. I'm Stuart Lohman, and you're live listening to the Biz News Power Hour. It was a historic day in the Mother City this morning as the Cape Town Stock Exchange was launched in Woodstock. We bring you some insights from that event. Investment insights today come from Protea Capital's Jean-Pierre Fistad and CounterPoint Management's Pete Fullion. Justin chats to PPC CEO Roland van Weinen and Capitex CEO Harry Furry. My colleague in the United Kingdom, Linda van Tilburg, chats to Kedeborne Shiloni. She, with her sister Keke Lotzi, run a company called Ram- Ramsilo Bricks, and they produce eco bricks from recycled plastic. And our partners at the Financial Times put the focus on Asia today. But first, over to you, Jared. I'm Jared Neves, and here are your most accessed stories. On our website, biznews.com, outspoken Rob Hersoff evokes passionate response, pandas Nick Hudson on the politics of COVID, and a referendum is now inevitable, full Craig on Cape Independence. On Business TV on YouTube, Investment Insights with Magnus Haystack, Yesterday's Flash Briefing, and the Business Global Portfolio Webinar. On Business Radio on Spotify, Commodity Counters are no-go, Magnus Haystick, Yesterday's Business Power Hour, and an interview with Tiffany Dunstan, CEO of Adapt IT. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. I'm Nadia Swat, and here are today's news headlines. The latest South African stock exchange launched today, pledging to lure firms from across the continent with listing costs that are a third of that charged by the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. TWK Agri will be the first company to trade on the Cape Town Stock Exchange, which was previously called For Africa Exchange before an overhaul that resulted in the bourse becoming a full-fledged stock exchange. While a wave of initial public offerings has swept across the world, firms in the continent's most industrialized nation, especially smaller companies, have been delisting from South Africa's main exchange in recent years due to cost and onerous compliance issues. Cape Town Stock Exchange and other rivals such as A2X and ZARX have been using technology to cut listing costs in a bid to lure business. Six South African Health Department officials who were linked to the Digital Vibes corruption scandal will be suspended from their posts on Thursday pending a disciplinary hearing and the formalization of charges against them. The move follows the release of a report by the nation's Special Investigating Unit relating to its investigation of the tendering scandal. President Cyril Ramaphosa has defended the almost three-month delay in releasing the report and has also pushed back against suggestions that he should take immediate action against those implicated in the Digital Vibe scandal, saying the process should be conducted fairly and people should be given an opportunity to answer accusations against them. The investigating directorate has said it would be monitoring the movements of alleged Gupta fixer Kuban Moodley, who was released on bail of 150,000 rand on Wednesday. Moodley is accused of improperly awarding transnet contracts to regiments Capital and Trillion. Moodley was freed just less than 24 hours after he was arrested at OR Tambo International Airport on his way to Dubai. The court released him on the condition that he surrenders his passport to the authorities and reports to the Santon police station twice a week. Justin, what's been happening in the markets? I'm Justin Roberts, and this is the market report. The JSE All Share Index is up at 64,500. In the currency markets, the rand is stronger against all the major currencies to 15 rand 7 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 34 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 47 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,738 an ounce. A Kruger Rand is trading at around 27,500 Rand. Brent crude is lower, trading at $77.50 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 650,000 Rand. 
In the financial news, Capitech Bank's digital solutions uptake continued to soar in the six months ended to August, with the bank recording a double-digit rise in retail clients using its digital channels. The bank, which today released unaudited financial results for the six months ended 31 August, says its successful digital strategy led to a strong set of interim results, with group headline earnings up 513% to $3.7 billion. In the period, Capitex clients using digital channels increased by 22% to $8.9 million. Capitex said in the six months, there was a strong behavioral shift to the bank's app, recording a 46% surge to 6 million clients. Normalized headline earnings of Platinum Group Metals mining company Northern Platinum soared by more than 215% to 10.7 billion rand in what was a record operational and financial performance in the 12 months to June 30. The JSE-listed company stated on Thursday that its earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization were 176% higher at $16.7 billion and revenue 83% higher at $32.6 billion. The EBITDA margin rose to 51% from 33.8% in the previous 2020 financial year. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Thursday, September 30th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Our show is going to focus on Asia today. First, Hong Kong is struggling with fewer stock market listings, Japan has a new prime minister, and China's Belt and Road Initiative is saddling countries with hundreds of billions of dollars in hidden debt. Plus, China's telecoms giant Huawei has to shift its business focus because of U.S. sanctions. But can the company pull it off? I think the big question remains how they will pay their way through all of this. And if the Chinese state is going to pay for it, can they really succeed? I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Hong Kong's stock market is hurting from a drop in new listings after Beijing's crackdown on Chinese tech groups. Listings from these companies have become vital to the city, and bankers had expected Hong Kong to pick up the slack after Beijing made it clear it doesn't like its tech companies listing in the U.S. That has not happened. Over the past three months, Chinese tech groups raised just about $670 million from Hong Kong listings, and new listings in total raised $6.5 billion. On both counts, it was the worst performance since the first quarter of 2020, when the pandemic ripped through global markets. The big goal for China's Belt and Road Initiative is to link the country to the rest of the world with a massive network of roads and bridges, ports and pipelines. But it's also leaving many countries saddled with debt to China, since financing for projects largely comes from Beijing. A new study shows that scores of lower- and middle-income countries have been left with nearly $400 billion in hidden debts. So this is basically the amount of public sector debt to China that governments in low- and middle-income countries don't report uh, accurately to the World Bank's debtor reporting system. As the FT's China correspondent Ed White, U.S. researchers ran the study which looks at the first five years of Belt and Road financing. To explain that in a different way, that means more than 40 lower and middle income countries now have levels of debt exposure to China that is higher than 10% of their national uh, gross domestic product. That means that also that the average developing country is basically underreporting repayment obligations to China by an equivalent of 6% of GDP. So this highlights a real critical transition. This is a longer term transition that has taken place with China's foreign lending. So previously, China's lending was mostly directed to sovereign borrowers, such as central banks. But now nearly three quarters or nearly uh, 70% of China's foreign debt is issued across state-owned companies, uh, state-owned banks, special purpose vehicles, and joint ventures, as well as private sector institutions. So remember that these are debts which do not appear on government balance sheets, but crucially, the researchers believe that the governments, i.e. taxpayers, would ultimately be on the hook if these debts were not repaid. That's the FT's Ed White. One of China's top technology companies just got its CFO back. Huawei's Meng Wanzhou was detained in Canada for nearly three years. 
She was finally released this past week after the U.S. Department of Justice dropped its extradition request. The U.S. accused Meng of violating sanctions against Iran, but now Meng has to deal with U.S. sanctions that have crushed her company. To talk more about what's happening with Huawei, I'm joined by the FT's Greater China correspondent, Catherine Hilla. Hey, Catherine. Hi, Mark. So, Catherine, just to recap, the U.S. sanctions on Huawei made it you know, virtually impossible for the group to buy semiconductor chips. And this is a company that really depends on chips for the smartphone and telecoms gear it sells. How badly did those sanctions hurt the company? So until last year, the, the impact of the sanctions uh, was not that visible. But in the first half of this year, we had the first really concrete evidence in terms of numbers. The company reported a 30% drop in overall revenues. And uh, last week, one of the senior um, executives of the group predicted that overall the the smartphone business, which has revenues of about 50 billion US dollars a year, would probably lose up to 40 billion of those 50 billion by the end of the year. So that basically means it's it's going to be eradicated. Wow. And and so considering all these existing problems, uh, it would probably make sense if Huawei were to try and reinvent itself. That is exactly what they're trying to do. Um, now, c- the company leadership, after the first scramble over the, the uh, past two years uh, to try and react to the U.S. sanctions and trying to keep afloat, that they've now arrived at the point where they have a bit more time to uh, think about their longer-term future and develop a strategy and, and make new plans. Uh, if you look at what they're doing, there are basically two components. One is trying to find new revenue streams or new sources of revenue that can offset at least part of the revenues they're losing. And then the second component is trying to stay ahead in the long term in in the innovation race. And so the 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 kinds of business they are targeting now to generate revenues in the in the near term are businesses that are less dependent on uh, leading edge semiconductors. So where where they would need fewer chips and if they need chips it, it would be more mature chips that can be manufactured in China. And what kind of businesses is it developing now Catherine? Can you talk a little bit more about the sectors where Huawei is uh, innovating? Sure. So one direction uh, where Huawei is pushing really hard is electric vehicles and, and smart cars. The, the chips used in uh, in most of the applications in electric cars are chips that can be made in older chip fabs. So uh, you don't need like the, the newest of them all. And that means that those chip factories would not need new machinery or new software from the US. And the other big area, which is more like of a, of a future ambition for Huawei is, of course, uh, 6G. We've seen uh, Huawei founder and, and uh, CEO Ren Zhengfei talked to employees recently about the importance of focusing on research and development for 6G. And uh, he said himself that for Huawei, it was crucial to stay ahead in the technology race in order to, um, he, he likes using uh, military language and military metaphors. So he's, he said, we need to seize the patent front. So in order to uh, enable Huawei in the future, to be a big owner of patents that then other companies would have to turn to and pay them. Are there any major obstacles standing in Huawei's way um, in its planned transformation? I think the big question remains how they will pay their way through all of this. And and if the Chinese state is going to pay for it uh, or pay for a part of it, can they really succeed or, or will that be in kind of in line with the direction that the company itself would maybe want? The, the other uh, big question remains about China's future semiconductor supplies. The reason uh, these U.S. sanctions are relatively successful against uh, Huawei at the moment is because U.S. companies control technology and equipment in in a few core niches. Just talking about uh, some uh, kinds of equipment, machinery that's that's needed to produce the newest kinds of semiconductors. And as long as uh, semiconductor technology doesn't move away from that way of manufacturing into other 
um, uh, segments, the, the U.S. stranglehold uh, is going to remain. And as long as China fails to manage to break through, I don't see how this situation is going to change. And so Huawei remains settled with this key hurdle. Catherine Hilla is the FT's Greater China Correspondent. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Mark. Japan will have a new prime minister to replace Yoshihide Suga, who announced his resignation earlier this month. Fumio Kishida won the battle to lead the ruling Liberal Democratic Party. His victory is a win for the status quo and a defeat for younger LDP members who want generational change. The FT's Tokyo bureau chief, Kana Inagaki, says the 64-year-old political veteran is known to be mild and steady. So under Kishida, we're not expecting a huge change in economic or foreign policy. He has um, campaigned you know, on promises to, for example, distribute uh, wealth or to reduce income gap. And he's talked a little bit about the shift from neoliberal, you know, policy that was pursued under, for example, uh, former Prime Minister Junichiro Koizumi. But at the end of the day, I don't think there will be much of a big shift, for example, on Japan's policy of pursuing um, aggressive monetary policy or fiscal spending. Those economic policies are unlikely to change under Kishida. That's our Tokyo bureau chief, Kana Inagaki. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me for today's Market Insights is Protea Capital Management's founder, Jean-Pierre Fister. Jean-Pierre, always good to touch base. There's been lots happening in China since we last spoke. The Evergrande saga has cooled somewhat, but are you still cautiously optimistic on the world's second largest economy, given the further developments since we last spoke around a month ago? Hi, Justin. Um, in broad terms, yes. Uh, over the long term, I do believe that there will be strong growth from China uh, economically, and that means strong growth from the companies that operate in that economy. It might be bumpy. We might see um, politicians saying that they want <clears throat> excuse me, the prosperity to be shared, to be more common. Um, so in the short term, there might be volatility. And you see that with Evergrande as well where now is coming out that uh, above, the, um, uh, above and beyond the debt that we know of, there could be more debt that was not recognized on their balance sheet. So in the short term, I'm still cautious, but in the long term, I'm still bullish on China. I don't believe that common prosperity takes us completely away from the basic principles of red capitalism. And I think it is in China's interest to make sure that shareholders in Chinese companies, whether they are listed in the U.S. or in Hong Kong, whether they make use of VIE structures or not, uh, don't end up with donuts, don't end up with a big fat zero. That is not good for China. So long-term, still bullish China. And Jean-Pierre, the correlation between GDP growth and stock market returns, Stephen Nathan argues that there is no such correlation there. And I was reading a tweet from Pitful Yun the other day. In the last 30 years, the China stock index has grown around 2.5% annually, despite often years of 10% plus GDP growth. How does that work? Yes, very interesting. So um, on that specific metric, uh, over the very long term, the companies of a stock exchange, if they show strong growth, it is because that they are growing in the economies that they're operating. The interesting thing is that for most stock exchanges, only around half of the companies or the profits of half the profits of the companies that are listed on any one exchange comes from the country in which uh, they are listed. So in the U.S., for instance, roughly half the profits that U.S. listed companies make actually come from outside the U.S. In South Africa, it's less than half. So GDP, domestic product, not GNP, means that it's money made within a country. And because only half the stocks operate in the country in which they are listed, you don't get that strong correlation. So that's absolutely correct. What one misses, though, is if you just look at one number, GDP, 
or one number, a stock index performance, you are missing the details. And the important details are in the case of China, let's say, that back in the day you had the state-owned companies playing a very big role, which was in finance and utilities and telecommunications. The last decade, the IT companies have played a very big role. And if you look at the stock returns of the IT companies, there you can see the very strong growth of the Chinese economy because the growth hasn't been even. It's been the utilities and, and state-owned companies languishing, but the capitalistic uh, in nature IT companies really growing strongly, and that's why their share prices have done very well. Uh, and you're missing that if you just look at the index performance. I was at the launch of the Cape Town Stock Exchange this morning, uh, which has been rebranded from Forex Africa Exchange. TWK Investments and Agriculture Business worth around 1.4 billion rand was listed too. Without putting too much focus on TWK Investments itself, what's your outlook for agriculture-related business as a theme in South Africa, the likes of Zeda and businesses that derive parts of their earnings from the industry, such as Omnia? Hmm. I've got mixed feelings about agriculture. Uh, agriculture is called a, a primary sector. It's, it's where things begin, you know, <laughs> and uh, and. Um, it's not the, the um, transition of products from their basic nature into a more differentiated product. So, I mean, South Africa, for instance, has got a very large citrus industry. But an orange grown in South Africa and an orange grown in Spain is still basically an orange. Uh, there's not a lot of difference. So it's a commodity industry. And while our agricultural industry has done very well, it is primary, it is a commodity, and therefore, for the long term, it is not normally associated with very high returns. You don't have a brand. I know there are some brands in citrus, but uh, uh, they're still trying to get a real premium for that brand when it comes to the price of the, of the citrus that they sell. So long story short, I do think there's a very good story in South Africa regarding formalization of agriculture, bigger uh, farms making use of better technology, and that means that they are quite profitable. That is good as we professionalize commercial farming. Um, but over the long term, I'm not very bullish the sector as an outside investor. I would rather invest in a secondary or a tertiary sector where the brands really can command a pricing premium. And therefore, I don't have significant exposure in the funds under our management when it comes to primary uh, sectors of the economy. Just having a general outlook, September was a turbulent month for equity markets globally. Do you see this volatility continuing through the remainder of the year? Yes. Look, there's... There's always volatility. Um, so uh, the irony is by expecting volatility uh, in itself, you would think there wouldn't be volatility because everyone's expecting it. So the prices are where they should be. But it's just the nature of markets that they go up and down, and sometimes they go up and down sharply in a short space of time, and that, that gets captured in things like the VIX index internationally or the SAVI index in South Africa, and that's an indication of higher uh, uh, volatility. So we've seen a very volatile past month, the all share index and stock markets globally dropping very sharply and then recovering again very sharply. So if you just look point to point, it looks like not much has happened in the month of September, but actually it's been, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. Uh, so yes, the, the fourth quarter is normally associated with higher volatility and um, there's no reason to think this could be any different, but I don't have a firm expectation of the level of volatility. The, the VIX index will will tell us, uh, but it does seem like uh, we're, 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 um, uh, we should expect, again, a, a period of heightened volatility because it's been actually a period of low volatility since the COVID sell-off of last year, March, to very recently. I was speaking to Magnus Haystack yesterday, and he said it's a good time to have some money or put some money into hedge funds, given the protection it affords investors when the equity markets go south. Between your three main funds, Jean-Pierre, what's your net exposure like at the moment? Or put differently, are you more defensive or more aggressive than the norm at this point in time? Hmm. So I'm glad to hear Magnus has that view. He has myself a number. I'm waiting for his call. <laughs> but uh, at the moment, we've come from relatively low levels of net exposure, therefore quite offensively, to in the last few weeks actually uh, increasing that net exposure. So... Um, we have found in this volatile period in September that there have been some good opportunities on the buy side. So we've bought some additional share exposure, and that pushes up your net exposure. But at the same time, we've also bought more put options. So what this means is if markets continue their recovery, 
we are well placed with our high net exposure to uh, take part in that and capture that. But if we see this heightened volatility that I said could happen in the fourth quarter, we also have more uh, put option protection. So what that means is our net exposure has gone up, but our gross exposure has gone up even more because we've got more positions on the long side and more protection on the short side via put options, both in South Africa and our Protea South Africa fund and globally in our Protea Global Hedge Fund. I can't recall us ever talking about the topic, and it's relatively vanilla. I tend to avoid these questions at all costs, Jean-Pierre. But what's your stance on cryptocurrencies? <laughs> mm, I'm not a crypto bull. I understand the construct, and I think the technology of blockchain is a wonderful technology and will find application when it comes to having open ledgers, when it comes to transactions that you need to make sure are captured somewhere or recorded somewhere in a way that people can't after the fact fiddle with those recordings. For that, blockchain is great. But the application of blockchain into cryptocurrencies, for me, um, is where it gets a bit carried away. Uh, I don't believe there's an intrinsic value of these cryptocurrencies. I can understand that if you have different countries with foreign exchange restrictions, hype inflation, and people getting told by governments you're not allowed to move your money as you see fit, that it makes cryptocurrencies very popular. And at some point in time, maybe all the people who wanted to get involved in the cryptocurrencies will be involved in cryptocurrencies. And what then? So it has got these elements of a Ponzi scheme, uh, which means that for a long period of time, prices goes up, go up and it looks like value increases, and then it all comes crashing down. So I have not invested in crypto myself. Our funds have not invested in crypto. It's a little bit of the Wild West and our process is to look for gaps between price and value. And cryptocurrencies, in my opinion, don't have an inherent value. And therefore, for me, it's uninvestable. Lastly, the hard commodities, specifically the precious metals basket, iron ore and gold, have sharply backtracked over the past month. I know commodity prices are notoriously hard to predict. But are these signposts that this is near the end of the commodity cycle? It could be, yes, and it goes hand in hand with this uh, big question whether inflation is transitory or not. So commodity markets are telling us that maybe the inflation we are seeing currently in macroeconomic data is possibly transitory because the commodity price is already coming down, which would imply maybe inflation going forward will come down. Um, you mentioned precious metals. I mean, today we had uh, results coming from Northern Platinum Holdings, and it was very interesting to read the introduction where they speak specifically of rhodium. So Similar to my comments previously about if you look at the index, you miss the details on a per stock basis. If you look at commodity indices, you miss some of the intricacies on a per commodity basis. So a lot of commodities are much lower. But something like rhodium still looks very bullish looking forward given constraints of supply. Something like coal is at record levels, which is good for, for coal mines. Uh, so there, there are some interesting things when it comes into the detail, but in general, I do think commodity companies and commodity prices are telling us that inflation might be transitory and that a lot of these commodities are settling down. And that's good for us that we don't see an inflation shock like we saw in the 1970s. I'm Joshua Roberts of Business, and you've been listening to the Market Insights with Jean-Pierre Fister. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. Well, there was a little bit of history made this morning in Cape Town when at 9 o'clock the Cape Town Stock Exchange rang its bell for the very first time. It was a pretty historic moment as well, a new listing, the eighth 
on the Cape Town Stock Exchange with the agricultural group TWK helping to mark this occasion. In this clip of the opening, we'll hear from the chief executive, Eugene Boyson, and from Chairman J.J. Njeke, Johnson Njeke, who's a chartered accountant and a very well-known member of the South African business community, having chaired MMI, various other companies, and is a non-executive director of Sassel. J.J. is the chairman of the Cape Town Stock Exchange. Let's join the fun. It's almost time for the countdown for TWK. We've got Jackie up from Boschendal who will open up Fon, Fonis out the way. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Thank you. Many congrats. The stock exchange is open. The Cape Town Stock Exchange. Thank you. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Tommy. Cheers. There you go. A special thanks to Boschendal. They really, they've been superb in terms of supporting us, and it was important for us to have a have a local produce over here. And Jackie, thanks for thanks for coming around and giving us the the a real opening with a, with a touch of class. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Sorry, JJ, I didn't, I didn't introduce him, but this is JJ, uh, our Honourable Chairperson. He's been with the Exchange almost since inception. He acts as a sage for me every single day. Um, and JJ will, will give us some of the closing notes. Thank you, JJ. Thank you, Eugene. My task is a simple one. Um, my task is really to thank you for, I mean, taking your time this morning to attend this event. This is an exciting moment for this exchange. Um, we are launching a brand new exchange in Cape Town after, I understand, 100 years or so. And uh, we are excited. And, and I must say that despite some of the wobbles that we had at some point in building this business, I am pleased to see people who have stood with us for all these years. Uh, we are now looking forward to going from strength to strength. And I must really thank also the Premier for welcoming us to this beautiful province of the Western Cape, the city of Cape Town for supporting us, and that place called what? CITI with many stars. Um, we are really excited now that I mean, our business is going to be based here in Cape Town. And I also need to thank, I mean, TWK and welcome you to this new family. Uh, we, will, we will erase the memory of where you've been before. Um, we don't even want to mention where you've been before. Welcome. You are joining a wonderful new family. We also want to thank all those companies that have listed on our exchange and have continued to grow from strength to strength. Thank you to also the sponsors who have sponsored this event, Boschendal, uh, Cape Fruit, and also to, I mean, our partners straight for the support that you have given to this business over the years. I also need to thank Eugene, Estelle, and the wonderful team who've made this event the success it has been so far. Uh, well done, guys. And to the shareholders and the board of um, Cape Town Stock Exchange, thank you for believing in this business and continuing to back it. At Bright Rock, we believe that change can unlock amazing opportunities. We've partnered with industry leaders to provide you with tips and tools to help you navigate life's big change moments. Welcome to this week's Thought Leadership feature made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News and with me today is Cappy Tech CEO, Harry Ferry. 
very great set of results relative to 2020's numbers, although one can argue that it is off a very low base, although many of the broader macro issues from 2021, from 2020, were still in play in 2021. How do these numbers fare to 2019's numbers, which is probably a better comparison? Yeah, I think uh, that's what we've done uh, to show the comparison uh, with 2019. And if you look at that, your earnings per share uh, has gone up with 35%. So if you look at it um, over a two-year period, uh, compounded over a year, 16% per year. So I think if you can grow through a COVID uh, year plus the unrest uh, to a 35% uh, compared to uh, August 19, I think uh, that tells you we had a very good performance. So I'm, we as a team are very happy with the performance. Capitec is now the third largest bank by market cap in South Africa behind First Round and Standard Bank. I don't think even you or the rest of the management team could have ever imagined Capitec growing into the giant that it has. Where to from here, Harry? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. We never discuss uh, market cap or share price in our ex-co board meetings. It's all about the fundamentals and delivering on on the needs of the of the clients. Uh, and I think that's the important thing. Uh, you mustn't focus on the output. You must focus on the input. Uh, from here, you know, uh, if I look at uh, retail bank, um, we've got a very nice base of 16.7 million clients that um, has got a savings account with us. But we need to optimize those those clients. On average, we've got it between, if you look at save, transact, uh, credit, and insure, we've got about an 8 to 9% market share uh, per category uh, or per function. And how, how, how do we take that to a 20% market share? Um, and then you're sitting with Business Bank. Uh, we're building uh, a new uh, digital offer. And uh, we're planning to rebrand by the end of next year and then to optimize it. So we believe there's still plenty of potential. Uh, it's just for us to go and execute on our plans. Okay, the Viceroy saga was recently in the limelight with the short seller slapped with a 50 million rand penalty by the FSCA, South Africa's financial market watchdog. Are you happy that those allegations mentioned by Viceroy in their 2018 report are behind you? Well, you know, our viewers, we've answered all those questions uh, in 2018 um, in detail. You know, their allegations was there. Our answers was put on sense. Uh, so the public can see exactly how we've answered and how we've handled it. And, you know, the penalty, that's something between Viceroy and the FSCA. So we stayed out of it because we believe it's something that they must handle. Uh, again, we're focusing on a business. Uh, we believe our credit policies are correct, uh, our provisions is adequate uh, and we're having very strong growth on the transactional side. You know, if you look at um, our transactional income has grown with 33%. So for us, it's focusing on a business. Terry, I know you and management don't determine the share price, but in your opinion, why does Capitech trade at such a premium to the rest of the local banks on the JSE on nearly every valuation metric? Or put differently, what makes Capitech so much superior to the likes of First Strand and Standard Bank, or at least in the eyes of the market? Well, I think if you look at our uh, uh, profit uh, growth in the last couple of years, uh, it's been uh, between 15 and 20%. Uh, so I think people are looking at the forward-looking um, earnings that we can generate and then looking at the potential. Uh, you know, what can you do? Uh, I think there's a lot of potential in the business banking side and there's a lot of potential in the retail space. Um, you know, if you look at credit, uh, I'm just using that and coming back to the market share argument. We've got on credit a uh, 5.7% market share on credit. Um, now, the moment you're taking that to 10 or 15%, uh, it's a completely different business. Um, so there's plenty of opportunities. I'm Joshua Roberts of Biz News, and you've been listening to Capitech CEO, Harry Furry. This thought leadership feature was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs mesh to life insurance that changes as your life changes. I'm Joshua Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is PPC CEO, Roland van Vanen. Roland, good to have you on the program hours before PPC's close period begins. The PPC turnaround story continues with the announcement on Tuesday stating that the lenders are happy and a rights issue is off the table for now. Can you provide a little bit more context on the announcement? Yeah, thanks, Justin. So the announcement marks an important milestone in a process that has been going on now for a good year and a half at least. And it's one of the last steps. So amongst uh, them were a good 
a good performance of the underlying business, and secondly, a successful completion of the divestment um, of our Lime division, which we expect to close and proceeds flowing in October. And by that, we, we should have a sound balance sheet without the need for the rights issue. Africa has largely been troublesome for the group. Which jurisdictions are PPC exiting and which jurisdictions are PPC looking to continue to operate in? So we continue to operate in all the areas where we're currently at, meaning Botswana, Zimbabwe, DRC, Rwanda, um, and a minority in Ethiopia. What we have done, though, is a um, restructure in our DRC business, the underlying business BPC Barnett. We continue to operate on behalf of the owners, uh, but the economic benefits will largely stay with the lenders until the current loans have been paid back. But no more recourse to the group in South Africa, which was important to us. And what is the current environment operationally like? Depends a bit on the countries um, and even in the countries. So if you look at South Africa, uh, we do see growth in cement volumes, of course, compared to last year when we had the hard lockdowns, but even compared to 2019. However, uh, we see stronger growth in what we call the inland uh, regions, uh, Gauteng, Limpopo, etc. And we see, for example, the Western Cape quite hard hit, uh, absence of tourism um, and lack of economic activity. As central bankers around the world look to put on the brakes on this very accommodative monetary policy we've seen in the last 18 months, logically infrastructure drives and other for form of building expenditure will, will cur curtail somewhat. Are these your forecasts or do you think the demand for cement in the medium term is strong? I actually think that uh, we can be moderately positive about the demand for cement. You know, of course, across the continent, there's still a lot of infrastructure to be built. I also, you know, would not expect that the, um, the bankers around the world will slam the brakes on what they've been doing because they know the consequences. And if you just look at the, at the energy transition that South Africa is facing, um, where we most likely will get financial aid, you know, those kind of things all bode well for construction and therewith for the cement industry in South Africa. We've seen some large institutional interest in PPC in recent weeks. Just today, I saw that Sunlam increased its stake in the business to over 5%. What are these other exciting prospects that some of South Africa's shrewdest money managers are seeing? Well, I think what, uh, what you, of course, see is that uh, the infrastructure programs that have been talked about a lot are starting to become reality, slowly but surely. Um, for us, you know, being again back on solid foot uh, feeding in our balance sheet also means that we become more interesting for the larger fund managers. Um, and we, you know, have always... Um, been talking to, to Sam Lam. They have never left us and we're pretty pleased to, to see them increasing their stake. Roland, you've led international companies prior to taking the reins at PPC. What are the, some of the unique challenges you've recognized over the past two years operating a company in South Africa? You know, one of the things that struck me in, in South Africa is the, the lack of our ability to really connect with government to put in place a strong manufacturing base across South Africa. Um, I think we're getting there step by step. Uh, but from my experience operating in other countries, both in developed and in developing environment, the cement industry in South Africa um, doesn't yet have the ear of the government that I was used to in some of the other countries. I'm Justin Roberts of BizNews, and you've been listening to PPC CEO Roland van Vanen. Counterpoint Value Fund Manager Pickful Yoon was one of the keynote speakers at the BizNews Investment Conference earlier this month. After his presentation, he sat down for a Q&A with BizNews founder Alec Hogg and delegates at the conference. This is an excerpt of the Q&A. You talk about adapting your views to, to investing. I read something really interesting recently uh, about cryptocurrencies, mm. where it, for the first time I understood that it's it's almost a fight, or it appears, anyway, it was in the Wall Street Journal, to be a fight between libertarians on the one hand mm -hmm. and governments. Yeah. Do you see it that way? And, and if that is the case, what are the chances that the libertarians are going to win? Libertarians lose most fights, I think, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, because... <laughs> Um, the consensus tends to be anti-libertarian most of the time. Um, but I, I do think that in terms of currency, um, sorry, let me take a step back. I, I, if you want to convince people of, of something or sell something or make something work, you can't appeal to reason. People don't listen to reason. They listen to incentives. 
And I think the one thing that cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and Ethereum and others have going for them, there's a strong incentive in large parts of the world to get your currency decentralized outside of the central system um, so that you can move it around and do with it what you feel like and not what the regulations tell you you have to do with it. So, so I, I do think because it speaks to that strong incentive that there is a strong chance there. It's, it is interesting because I've always been listening to people like uh, Nora Rabini and uh, uh, even Charlie Munger, who says it's a lot of bunk. The establishment hates it. The establishment absolutely hates it. But um, there is a use case for it, there, and there are increasing use cases for it. Uh, and I think it's really an area one should follow. Yeah, it, it, uh, I'm changing my mind on that, that's for sure. Um, this is not a question trying to stump you. Um, so would you invest in a high-margin business in South Africa that is um, leveraged? And let's say it's a macadamia farm in Sanin with um, EWC looming. Um, so, so that it, it ticks all your boxes. I mean, it's not as lucrative as Andrew Gunn's Porsche that he bought for 700 and <laughs> 600 rand in 1960. But, but it's it's similar. It's yeah. inflation beating. It's it's high margin and costs are in rands. You know, all those things. Offshore currency. Would you do that? So I think the, the thing that you want to do is you want to invest in something with a stable income stream, a reasonably certain income stream. And if an asset is subject to EWC, the income stream is probably not as stable as you would like it to be. I mean, so, so one needs to, you know, and you, using the example of a macadamia farm, I, I don't know the specific farm, whether it's a target of EWC or not, um, but I think one has to judge each, each asset on its own merits, whether it has, because it needs a stable income stream to enable it to pay off the debt at low or negative real interest rates. Uh, so so it, it has to have a lot of debt, but a stable income stream as well. You need both those present. What would happen if the ANC were to go below 50% at the next election and EWC were to be off the table? Well, I think EWC is one of the problems. We have many, many problems uh, in terms of allocating capital to South Africa. I mean, I, I can understand why anybody in the world would be loath to allocate capital to South Africa, because it's not only EWC, there's... BE is a huge issue. I mean, if you are buying a business or investing in a business and you have to give 10 or 20 or 30% of the business away to somebody else, um, it just lifts the hurdle rate that you need to earn out of the business to make it worth your while. So, so there's all sorts of problems. Um, EWC is one of them. If that goes away, there's, you know, the hurdle rate comes down a little bit, but there's still other hurdle rates that, or other problems that need to reduce as well. So you'd, you'd agree with, with Rob, to become investable, you're going to have to have a different political philosophy. So, so I, I, I'll just caveat that by, say, by saying that you can, it's easy to point out all the negatives. But all those negatives mean is that you need a higher hurdle rate to make that investment decision. So if you bring the price into the equation, the price relative to what you're getting, not only looking at what you're getting, all these negatives, but the price you're paying to acquire these things, then I think a lot more investments in Africa make sense because the price is low enough to compensate you for the risk of making that investment. And I think that's the key thing that nobody really has spoken about when they are being so negative about investing in Africa is that you have to bring the price into the uh, equation as well. Having said that, it is a risky environment. If you put all your eggs in the South African basket, I think that is foolish too. I mean, I, I don't think that's the right thing to do. But right now, the way assets are priced here... The way and the prices are low because of all the negativity. That's that's clear. That's how markets work. Everybody's negative, so prices are low. Prices are compensating for, take the, for taking the risk. Prices weren't low in South Africa 12 years, 13, 14 years ago at the time of the financial crisis. Prices were not low. They were not compensating you for taking the risk of investing in this country. And as Magnus pointed out, the trends were clear. You could see where we were going at that time already. But prices are different now. It's not the prices aren't they haven't stayed the same. What is in your bundle now of those yeah. highly uh, geared, leveraged, speculative stocks that, that we can do our homework on and then create our own bundles from? So again, I, I, I think one should have a look at the shipping. South Africa, Grindrod shipping um, has done well, but I still think it's, it's not expensive. Um, so just looking at South Africa, AB InBev is listed here, although it's offshore business. It's, that's, that's one British American tobacco you can look at. That's a geared business with a stable income stream. It's out of favor now because the ESG people you know, don't like it. Uh, but the ESG people aren't going to be in control forever. Um, 
So those are sort of businesses. And then uh, uh, in South Africa specifically, there's a whole bunch of small cap businesses that are priced very cheaply, extremely cheaply, that are paying you more than you ever need to be paid for taking on the risk of investing in South Africa. So go through a small cap list of stocks. There's a lot of them. Help us, then. Give us, give us some <laughs> insights. Okay, so... Um, so I would look at, I would, uh, Sadvest Capital is a good capital allocator. Chris Seabrook uh, has done very well over the years, training at a 30% discount, 40% discount. Um, there is, I think Lewis is still cheap. I think there's um, companies trading at below their liquidation value. Marafi is a company like that. Up until recently, I think it's gone up a bit just now. Uh, Huleman trading below liquidation value. So those, those are some names. This interview is brought to you by First Rand. I'm Linda van Tolberg for Biz News. Two sisters, originally from Sasselberg, have started a company that is manufacturing eco-bricks made from recycled plastic. They are Kekolozzo and Kedeboni Teluani, and their company is called Ramzillo Bricks. They are a 100% black female-owned business and have just managed to clinch a deal with South African building material retailer Builders Warehouse for their products. Joining me is one of the Teluani sisters, Kedeboni. Hi, Kedeboni. Good morning. How are you, Linda? Very well, thank you. Well, um, women in construction are not always mentioned in the same sentence. How did you two get involved? We actually got in through our father, and it really was not a world that we were aware of or we understood what we were doing. So growing up, my father had a construction business that he started in like 1999 or something like that. So we were quite young. So we'd go with him on site, and this was every school holiday. So my sister and I got to understand the construction side. We'd see buildings start from scratch, you know, and we'd see how a business runs on the back end as well. So with that interest that he saw in us, he registered a business for us in 2013 and we're doing a lot of construction work and that's when we picked up that we're spending quite a lot of money on bricks so we then started manually manufacturing cement bricks so we wanted to save money and we started manually manufacturing the cement bricks which were consumed by our our projects however we wanted something that was different innovative and that set us apart so we then started um, researching what we can do within the same industry and we came across a waste picker an elderly waste picker who, interesting enough, we still collect from her till today. And she explained to us how plastic recycling creates an income for her, allows her to be able to take care of her grandkids and afford medication. So my sister also is quite OCD about litter. And, and so even growing up, she was one of those people who would tidy up after people as well. And so I get that. I'm like that. <laughs> so then we, we realized that we actually want to do something in the plastic recycling space, but also stick to what we know, which is construction, you know. So we then looked at how we can use plastic in the manufacturing of our bricks. And this went on for about a year until we got a product that we're comfortable with and we decided to take it for product testing. So you kept on tweaking the mixture? 100%. I mean, I was working at the time, so my sister was full-time on this, and she would, throughout the week, she would be calling me, asking me for money so that she can go and buy waste and go and buy all these products that are for experimenting purposes. And on Fridays when I get home, I would then get there, and she would present what she's found, like her findings throughout the week, and we would be fine and work on it and do research. So there's a lot of research and development and a lot of experimenting for a good year of the product coming into fruition. So how much plastic is actually in your bricks? What is the percentage? So we manufacture different sizes and we manufacture in accordance with the standards um, that are in South Africa from the South African Bureau of Standards. So we've got the maxi stock and the pavers. So for the pavers, we've got about 20% plastic. And this is because of the required strength of the product, according to the standards. And then with the maxi and the stock bricks, it's about 30% plastic in them. So they have slightly more plastic. You're also creating jobs for these waste pickers. And you talked about this lady that you found. Today, we work with about 50 waste pickers. And it is in Free State and also in Gauteng. So we have a provincial footprint now in two provinces. And so with that, we've been able to create direct employment for the people who work at our factory. But one of the most touching things is being able to support small businesses that are in the recycling space, but also the waste pickers, the informal waste pickers, to sort of formalize their job. Because 
they do one of the most undignified jobs out there, but they're actually the initiators of a circular economy. They're the first people who ensure that we recycle by collecting that waste, you know. So we are very proud to be working with them and to be creating a livelihood for them through the manufacturing of our bricks. Yeah, that's great. And, I mean, you don't put a plastic bottle in the brick, so what process does it go through? There's the eco brick, and what we wanted to do was we wanted to create a product one that was as plug and play as possible, so easy for a contractor to use without any lessons learned or any additional costs. So we then went into processing the product in such a way that when you have a look at the product, you would not be able to tell whether it's a cement brick or the conventional cement brick or our plastic brick. So in the development of our IP, we ensured that we process the plastic in such a way that even if the the brick um, was to be broken into half or building was, or a building was to be demolished, there would not be any traces of plastic to ensure that there's no leakage of plastic into the environment ever from the plastic that we process. So how does it compare to a cement brick? Like I said, it's got the same look and feel. That's just purely for the market to receive it and also from a um, structural perspective. So we wanted to make sure that when you are building, you're renovating your house, you're doing small renovations, you don't want to have the slip of an additional cost of adhesive or whatever else you use this product. You know, So it's got the same look and feel. But in terms of quality, it's very much superior. So it's stronger. And because of the plastic element, you it's, got, it's not as porous as the conventional brick. So you will not see those cracks on your wall for a longer period of time. So it requires less building maintenance. And due to the plastic element, plastic is known for insulation properties. So buildings are also energy efficient. So you also save on your energy bill and also taking care of the environment by just constructing your house with the plastic bricks. Well, and then the big news is you got it into Builder's Warehouse. Yes, yes, that was, that's probably like the highlights of our lives at the moment. I mean, it took some few years to get to this point. When builders heard of us, it was while we were still very much in the startup phase. I mean, our capacity at the time was so low. And when we sat with them, they said, it's fine, we'll grow with you, but you need to get to a point where your product is at a certain level to be in in the stores, you know, because it's their reputation as well. So we had to go through product testing, which was also helpful for us because we then got to learn some of the testing requirements that are out there. And that also adds value to the product, you know. So having the product on the Builders Warehouse shelves, granted, it's still growing because our capacity is still growing. So it's still a few stores, but we are growing with the brand to make sure that our footprint is spread out as much as possible. Yeah, so what is your capacity? How many can you manufacture? So currently, manufacture 10,000 units a day. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a lot, but when you look at the market itself, you know, when you just look at a house, it's not a lot. I mean, I think if you were to build a nice, modest house, it would maybe take us two or three days of production. So what were the challenges you were facing apart from the challenges of developing a product? One of the biggest challenges was because we're young, we're female, and my sister and I, I wish you could meet us, but we're like quite short. <laughs> so when we walk into boardrooms, <laughs> we look like we were sent by our father or something. So we look like we don't belong. <laughs> so one of the biggest challenges we faced was people didn't take the product serious because they didn't take us serious as business people, you know. So we had to go through a lot of convincing and it came with, with a lot of expenses because to convince means you have to meet with people, you have to sell the product, but you also have to go through testing and certification so that people know that this is a legit product. So it was people taking us serious, but it was also us understanding business, you know, understanding the business life cycle and where we want our business to be. So often, yeah, especially as young people, we go into business because it looks exciting and it sounds like I'm going to make money quickly. But we had to take the time to actually understand that there's a business life cycle and often the startup and growth phase are quite prolonged and they're quite difficult and there's literally no money for yourself. Whatever you think you're going to be spending, your chances are you're going to be spending on your business for the next few years. So understanding that business cycle and understanding where exactly we were in the business cycle helped us to be able to grow the business at a sustainable pace, you know, not to grow too quickly, but also not to miss the train on where we're supposed to grow the business. Are you going to scale? What are you hoping to do? So we have been fortunate. We've been able to secure some funding for expansion. So we that's very exciting. So we're busy now with um, acquisition of machinery. And, you know, with COVID now, things are so slow. So things have been very slow to come to South Africa. So we're waiting for the machinery to be installed. And we're looking at ramping up our capacity to 80,000 units a day by early next year. So you've become an eco-warrior in the process. 
often when we hear about climate change, one thing that we've learned is when we hear about climate change, we often think it's big business that has a responsibility to play. And when you look at the actions of us as individuals, when we are littering, we don't understand the impact of it. When that plastic is on the ground and it stays there, for argument's sake, for the next hundred years, you are actually contributing towards greenhouse gases by just throwing that plastic there. This interview was brought to you by First Rand. For more stories of South African success, visit the Good Hope section at biznews.com. Well, that's it from the Biznews Power Hour team for this week. Tomorrow, Carrie Adams takes the reins with Carrie's Corner. Thanks to Nadia Swat, Justin Roe Roberts, Jared Neves, and Dudu Zile Masuku. Until next week, have a good weekend. Ciao. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.